Hello, I'm Amber Athey, The Spectator's Washington editor, and I'm here to encourage you to subscribe to The Spectator's American edition. If you visit spectator.us forward slash subscribe, you can get our print and digital edition for just $7.99 a month. This means you get unlimited access to our amazing website and we'll send you a beautiful 80-page monthly magazine. You'll also have access to our mobile app. Subscribe now at spectator.us forward slash subscribe. You won't regret it. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America and we'll be asking if normalcy which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics? The answer, of course, is no. I'm joined today by John Fund, who is a columnist at National Review and foxnews.com. And we're going to be asking if HR1 is an existential threat to American democracy. John, you've written a couple of pieces for us on this subject. HR1 is House Resolution 1, which is the Democrats' extremely ambitious plan to reform electoral processes in America in a way that would massively advantage them in the future. Can you, for our listeners who might not know about it, can you give us a sort of brief outline of of what the reform is, how extensive it is, and why you think it may be so dangerous? Well, reform, as you know, Freddie, is a word that is often misused to describe what you want to do and how you want to do it. Uh, I would call this a deform. I don't think there is anything in this legislation that improves American democracy, perhaps except for a few passages on the margins. This would basically make fraud easier by forcing every state, which currently has its own election laws, as the Constitution allows, to implement early voting, automatic voter registration, same-day registration, online voter registration, and no-fault absentee balloting without any guarantees that there would be safeguards against fraud or misrepresentation. It would degrade the accuracy of registration lists by requiring states to automatically register any person on any government list, which of course would mean tremendous duplications, tremendous confusion. It would require states to allow 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds to register to vote. It would prevent election officials from checking the eligibility law effectively by saying, if you don't have an ID, you can just say, I am who I am, and no other questions asked, and you can still vote. And it creates broad language that would criminally charge anyone who questions the eligibility of a voter with a felony. In other words, if I say I'm trying to stop non-citizens from voting, you could potentially be prosecuted because that could be interpreted as a form of voter suppression. We've just had an election which was disputed by the losing side, by Donald Trump. Trump and his team were unable to prove that there was serious or widespread fraud. However, there was a massive increase in certain swing states in mail-in voting. And perhaps because of the whole fuss around fraud and, and the slightly crazy conspiracy theories that were being thrown around, there haven't really been many questions asked about that. And, and as I understand it, and from what you're saying, you're saying that that would now be applied nationwide. So the advantages that the Democrats had through the massive increase in mailing voting, partly down to the pandemic, would be institutionalized if, if this reform is to pass. Yes. And let me say something about the fraud issue in 2020. Donald Trump 
did the cause of voter integrity no favors by manufacturing spurious claims about computer hacking, ridiculous claims about election officials conspiring with others to subvert democracy. But lawyers who were acting on behalf of other parties, like the Georgia Republican Party, about people who were voting, who were registered out of state, who were registered but had moved, who were dead, who were not eligible, who were felons. Those cases were not properly heard. In Georgia, for example, there was a month-long delay before they got a hearing. And by the time the hearing took place, the Electoral College had already met and the votes had been counted. So the judge declared it all moot. So the specific claims that Trump often made were wildly fabulous. There were specific allegations of voter fraud in specific swing states that I think were credible, but were never adjudicated before a court. So in a way, it's a great shame then that Trump has completely defeated not just his side, but perhaps the sort of stability of American democracy by claiming something crazy when there was actually something quite potentially scandalous. What's even worse is why did he do it? Freddie, I know that Britons believe that American democracy is flush with cash. Actually, we only spend about the same amount of money on our politics as we spend on gourmet ice cream every year, but it's still (laughs) a lot of money. Donald Trump, between November 3rd, Election Day, and January 6th, when the Electoral College met, raised $350 million from his supporters to fight the fraud, to stop the steal. In the fine print, told people, well, 75% of it off the top is going to my PAC. It won't go to any legal efforts. I can't find where the money was spent. I think that an awful lot of this was taken up by grifters and overhead. And the real American scandal are consultants, the political consultant class. I call them the staff infection. Yeah. From the Democratic point of view, it seems to me they don't really believe that any vote can be wrong, that every vote should be counted no matter where it comes from and no matter whether it might be duplicated or whatever. Thomas Sowell, in his book, A Conflict of Visions, explained that there's a fundamental difference in the worldview of liberals and conservatives. Conservatives believe in democracy, they believe in counting every vote, but they believe there have to be procedures that follow the rule of law and have proper safeguards. Liberals believe that the strength of a democracy is at its maximum when as many people as possible vote. And they're not particularly punctilious, at least in America, about whether or not all of those votes are legally cast. But it's fair to say at the same time that Nancy Pelosi and the people within her party who are pushing this bill and pushing some fairly radical amendments to it as well, that they are to the left, not just of the American public, but to the radical left of their own party on this issue. This is in addition to the voting changes, which you could have an argument about, clearly a partisan power grab. We have a federal election commission, which is supposed to adjudicate disputes. To ensure that there's no radical, bizarre outcomes, it is divided three to three between the parties, three Republicans, three Democrats. Pelosi would change that to having an odd number of members, which means that one political party could dominate the votes and basically rule on any election dispute the way that it wanted to. And I believe that If you look at the individual components of this, Americans do favor democracy, and you will see polls that show this bill is wildly popular. But if you break it down by the provisions, 75% of Americans support voter ID, including 
pluralities and majorities of blacks and Hispanics, Asians, everyone. Yes. So it's a case that the, the Democrats dress it up with rhetoric, you know, saying nobody should be denied the right to vote. But that's not actually the real issue here. Well, there were no hearings on this bill. This is a 791-page bill. The table of contents alone is 24 pages. There were no congressional hearings. This was rushed through in the space of seven days and hit the floor. The debate was perfunctory. They did not want a national debate on this issue, even though it would completely transform our elections at every level and override the election laws of all 50 states. That should tell you something when proponents of a measure do not welcome robust discussion. It is quite troubling, isn't it? Because it's actually now passed. It, last night, it passed the House of Representatives. It now goes to the Senate, where in theory it could pass. And as you say, almost with very, with very little public discussion and very little serious scrutiny of what this very major and large bill entails. Well, the media has certainly not been helpful the coverage has been almost uniformly that it's people who want to suppress the vote. They're the only ones who are opposing it. In the Senate, normally a filibuster would stop this. This is legislation that would require 60 votes to cut off debate, and the Democrats would need 10 Republicans to take their side. However, Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota says, well, this bill is so important. Let's have an amendment that would temporarily suspend the filibuster to pass just this one piece of legislation. Now, I don't think any Republicans are going to fall for this. You think that it will be stopped by by filibuster or some way. Is it possible that a watered down but no less or still pernicious version of this act will get through? Well, that is the danger. If enough opposition isn't mounted to this and enough explanation provided to voters who then can contact their senators, they will try to break up this bill into five or six component parts and try to pass them individually. And it may be that some Republican senators weaken. And if there's just something that is filled with fluffy fairy tales and all kinds of soft language, that parts of it might get through. That's why it's, I think it's important that the free speech elements of this are a danger to free speech is raised. By the way, the American Civil Liberties Union opposes this bill because it would put enormous constraints on the ability of nonprofits to lobby and exercise their right to uh, petition the Congress. When the American Civil Liberties Union breaks with the left on something, that is noteworthy and tells you that there's something in the bill which is beyond fluff. We talk a lot in Britain about how dangerous it can be when we don't have a proper opposition. Is this a case of the Democrats not really having a strong enough opposition in Congress? And that's why we haven't seen a bigger fuss about this bill other than people like you yourself are making? Well, I think that's changing because the emphasis was the $1.9 trillion stimulus package, of which less than 10% is related at all to COVID. And that bill is so large, representing far more than any individual stimulus bill did last year. That's where the attention is focused. But this bill was brought up very suddenly and very quickly. Opposition has begun to mount. And I was a speaker at the Conservative Political Action Conference in Orlando over the weekend. And this became the number one issue for the conservative base. And I do believe congressional offices are hearing from constituents. John, we'll leave it there. But thank you very much for joining us. And if this horrible HR1 continues, we should speak again.